Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Beef Central and Alenco Animal Health. And today we greet for the first time in 2022 the dynamic duo of the markets, Chris Harry from Stockco in South Australia and from Thomas Elder Markets in Victoria, Matthew Delgleish. Men, welcome. Thanks for having us back, Kerry. Yeah, thanks, Kerry and Matt. Good to, good to talk again. Now, 2021 last year was extraordinary for a number of reasons, and it closed with severe ructions through the supply chain in all states. Is this COVID caused chaos over? Is the supply chain coming out of the dark? Chris, how does it look from where you are down in South Australia? Uh, yeah, Kerry, look, it's slowly starting to shake out, but we're still seeing quite a few delayed deliveries on lamb and cattle. Uh, you know, uh, quite a few early January livestock have been pushed back. They're only just getting delivered now. So I think we've got, we might have another sort of four or five weeks until we get back to the market just rolling as it as it does. Matthew, I get the impression that uh, the, the Southern Meatworks supply, supply chains copped it much harder than the than the West and the North. Is that how you see it down in Victoria? Yeah, that's right, Kerry, and particularly in, in the processing space. So, um, you know, a lot of the southern processes, you know, Victoria and New South Wales, even across over in Tasmania, South Australia, all kind of reporting somewhere between 30 to 50% uh, workforce shortages through that January period. Uh, it is, and, and when you compare that, like in terms of volumes going through as well, their volumes are down in the southeastern states on the mainland. Um, sheep, sheep processing volumes were down about 20% from January last season, and that's already on a low number. And cattle processing volumes were down by about... Um, thirty uh, percent as well, and then you had lamb at about twenty percent. So they're all down in volumes. Whereas over on the west coast, where there's nowhere near as much COVID, um, you know they are only down by about three percent on their on their sheep and lamb processing volumes. Uh, you know compared to January last year. Yes, on this side of the country, it rattled right from the abattoirs either end, didn't it? I mean, some of the feedlots are having enormous difficulties, and and, and of course the supply chain at the other end, you see empty meat shelves all over Coles and Woolies. The uh, the empty meat shelves is probably more an impact of centralisation of, of basically the break-up rooms and the, the slicing room, but it did go right back through. That, that there was a huge issue around delivery uh, through drivers and that just not having enough drivers to get product out. Yes, I think it, it shows the advantage of an independent, non-rigid supply chain as opposed to uh, the Woolies and coal setup, which... Uh, were all uh, very, very rigid and straightforward, weren't they? They they depended on certain drivers and their own drivers, in fact, but they they weren't flexible enough to take anything into account. So I think um, COVID across a few supply chains of products has shown that just-in-time style of management that, that has become so common. It really showed that up. It didn't take much of a kink in the, in the supply chain here and there to see those kind of shortages appear all over the place, whether it's uh, building materials or you know, dry goods in the stores or, or indeed in the meat side of things. Yeah, 100%. And the, the just-in-time delivery component, which seems to be the norm, the chicken industry really copped it there um, uh, because all of that, it, you know, it's fresh processed, it's delivered straight to store and uh, there's a lot of chicken outlets, you know, from fast food all the way through to takeaway shops that struggled to get their uh, supplies. Chris, what did the industry learn from this supply chain uh, crash? What does the red meat industry take away in terms of lessons learned and and can we do better to ensure when it happens again we can manage it much better? Uh, it's, 
it all comes down to it all comes down to your commercial drivers. I think Terry, when we when we did our various trainings, business training, it always said you shouldn't be more than thirty percent exposed to any one particular supply model or supplier. And I just think we probably ended up with too many eggs in one basket. The independent retailers uh, in South Australia, especially, didn't seem to have the impact. You know, they had arrangements with uh, a multitude of uh, meat suppliers. And their shelves remained relatively well stocked. Um, the the single the single supply model seems to have been the one most impacted. Yes, uh, I have to mention those dreaded words again. I can't count the number of times I've said skilled labour shortage. Uh, a lot's been said, and there's some planning on. I understand at a federal level to uh, take this into account. But is this enough? What the feds are doing, or is it just another band aid? And they were forever destined to have this supply uh, skilled labour shortage right through the meat industry. Uh, look, I, I think it's, it does feel a lot like a Band-Aid and like things are being done a little bit on the run. But it is a difficult circumstance for them, no doubt. But, but yeah, it does, it does feel like it's just a patch job to me and I think you know, it's got to be you know, a more serious kind of look at it and, and, and a kind of dedicated plan to try and well, um, say, you know, yeah, build. Absolutely. I don't think you get any disagreement right through the industry. But I'll say something here. Let me know if you think it's unfair. Sophisticated economies all over the world, including, of course, Australia, cannot offer the numbers to fill the sort of jobs offered in meatworks. So the processing industry is destined to rely on imported labour. Is that fair or unfair? I'm tending to think that we're reaping what we sowed. So back in the 80s and early 90s, whether it be meat processing, shearing, seasonal picking, a lot of these were family-style um, trades and followed through. When the visa when the visa process came about, we had an influx of workers. So all of a sudden, that uh, that traditional "this is what my career is" started to erode. And now we've lost all of those people that you know, generation on generation, are beef boners or they're they're shearers. They've all gone into different different roles or, or different work streams. Yes, I know you weren't, you're anxious to talk about the, uh, the shearing issues. We'll talk about that later, uh, Chris, but uh, let's get down to uh, something nitty-gritty, the prices, livestock prices, and the big picture, picture first, that's what's red hot, of course. The ecky is still up there. It's 1120 cents. They're about 250 cents up on this time last year. Was anybody <laughs> forecasting this price this time last year or since? I don't think, I don't think so, uh, Kerry. Most of the market is still kind of of the view that, you know, at any stage we can see a correction. Certainly it started strong. We did see a correction late Jan um, down to these levels, but they're still historically very strong and we've kind of been hovering around that 11, 20, 11, 30, I should say, for the last um, week or so. Um, the MLA put out their, their summary of... Uh, you know, six or seven analysts, beef, beef industry analysts, just in their February update, and most of them, or the, the aggregate, is um, is looking at about a, I think about a nine fifty, nine sixty ecky by the middle of the year. Is the general consensus? There's a few that are still talking, you know, ten thirty, ten forty is the potential. My modelling personally shows similar to the aggregate, slightly lower than the aggregate towards the middle of the year, but um, my model has been a bit. Um, uh, you know, showing the FEOs valued all of the last year. So sometimes the models take a little bit of time, or the market, I should say, takes time to catch back up to the model. I, I personally think middle of the year we're probably looking at um, going a bit sideways. There'd be a bit of volatility, and I wouldn't. I, I would suspect somewhere around that, you know, kind of mid 10, 
10, kind of 10, 10, 50, 10, 50 level by June um, and maybe start to drift lower into the back end of the year, um, sub $10 then. That's still a hot yeah. price. Is that is that how you see it, Chris, as well? The rain, the continued rain, like if any of us could yeah. forecast that it's going to keep raining, we'd all be millionaires. Um, if it had have even got remotely back towards a seasonality that we're used to, the ecchi would have come off. And at present, the ecchi has been driven by grass. I talked to a client this morning in um, southern Queensland. He's got 10,000 acres of feed. He needs to put something on. Yeah. Um, and this is all the way through. You look at Aubrey Wodonga. They'll go through a green summer now. It's as green there as it was in spring. They'll go into winter green. So I'm thinking that we've got six months before we're going to see a feed pressure appear wow. that moves that supply-demand piece. Yeah, the other thing I'd add, Kerry, too, is that um, just the heavy steer price, you know, that that started January, you know, it started coming off through that through those processor um, problems in January. We got down to around 4.20 cents a kilo live weight, I think, and just in the last uh, you know, week or so, it's, it's drifted back up. So yesterday we closed at 4.50 cents a kilo live weight for heavy steers, which is just extraordinary. Um, and, and I think that's giving... Um, all along the, you know, the kind of beef um, you know, cattle complex is giving people confidence, uh, and and so you know, people are happy to to chase these higher prices for younger store cattle um, because they're fairly confident we're going to have a, a pretty strong season all the way along in terms of pricing um, right the way through to heavy steers this year again. And, and what about numbers? Where are we in terms of herd rebuilding? Uh, we were backward in numbers during the drought, but it's picked up uh, quite considerably since then. The male female kill ratio tipped over what 12 or 18 months ago yeah that's right so it, it has we're definitely in in the thick of the rebuild and now the northern players are, are very much joining they're a bit slow to come to the party interestingly back to that mla forecast carry um they've actually paired back the the pace of the rebuild a little bit they were looking at the herd, the herd getting up to above 28 million head in 2023 and they've actually pushed that back now to 2024 before we see a herd above 28 million head. Um, and so, yes, and, and, and part of that, I think, is just the delayed um, entry of the northern market there. Um, you know, they said that, that's kind of taken a little bit of time to develop. But, um, you know, we're on a rebuild phase. I think slaughter this year is looking at 6.7 million head is what they're forecasting, uh, which is, you know, when you look historically, that's still a pretty tight season. Um, not as tight as last year, but, you know, we've got another reasonably tight season before it starts to normalise in 2023. And when that forecast came out, we all thought it was quite aggressive because you're still reliant upon the conception rate the previous year to actually start to increase your numbers. And, you know, the money's been so good on, on heifers that um, even when you buy a heifer back in your 18 months before you get productivity or before you start ramping up your, your cow numbers without buying in. Um, last year, if you noticed, um, they were, the original forecast for slaughter in 2021 was, I think, about 6.7 million heads. And by the end of the year, they'd paired it back to six million. Um, so I think we might see a similar scenario here as the year progresses. Certainly, we had a slow start in January, and um, as the year progresses, I wouldn't be surprised if that six point seven for this year gets paired back into the mid to low sixes. Um, but we'll just have to see how it progresses. And we are getting a bit of a stockpile, so everyone's holding on to cows. Anything that's a viable female, we're hanging on to it. Seasonal pressure: the first thing you see go are the old cows, and there might be a run of those when when areas start to dry again. Yes, as you say, uh, the secret is rain. If it keeps raining, prices stay at these uh, historic highs, I guess, for some considerable time. Yeah, normally running, at I think, six six months in advance because if it stopped or backed off the season now, you've still got a carry-on of feed. Um, yeah. 
we're getting closer to winter. It's it's hot in Queensland, don't worry. They've had good rain, but it's still hot. And uh, they probably need another couple of storms through some areas just to fill those gaps in. But in the south, uh, a lot of those um, cattle areas, they have they have got green feed and, and they'll carry into a, a pretty good autumn. Yes, I think that northern area needs a big end to the wet season to, to give them... A, a positive outlook because I, I suspect it's getting marginally dry up there and there's a big a big cattle country. But look, we'll get to sheep meat issues in a moment, Chris, but just quickly, your bull season is just about to get underway. What's the uh, feeling like? I mean, you had a cracker season last year. Prices and clearances, oh, very, what's, what's the outlook? Very positive. We've only got to look at the way it finished last year. Traditionally, South Australia tended to be a little bit behind New South Wales, Victoria over prices. They've caught up considerably in the last 10 years. It's more about the the shortage. We saw people coming out of drought. They had extremely low bull inventories because they'd only bought what they had to. Cow numbers were down. I think we've seen people hold heifers, so you're going to see a lot more step in and buy three bulls instead of two bulls this year, and that can only push the market one way. Wow. It's, I couldn't get over the numbers and the clearances last year, but it looks like we can look forward to another positive bull selling season now. Let's take a quick break and we'll hear from our sponsor, our chief sponsor, in fact, Alenco Animal Health. Don't let your cattle suffer the setbacks caused by buffalo fly. Combat buffalo fly with Corral Patriot and silence insecticidal ear tags. Providing up to four months of long-lasting fly control. Alanco has you covered with a range of ear tags to suit your rotation program. Contact Alanco and find out how you can win the Buffalo Fly Battle now. Welcome back. You're on the grill with Beef Central on behalf of Alanco Animal Health and I'm talking to Matty Dalglish from Thomas Elder Markets in Victoria, Chris Howie from Stockco in South Australia. Chris, you have some issues about uh, in sheep meat. Can you give us a word picture on why you think the producer model for prime lambs may need to change in the current environment? We're seeing over the last three to five months a considerable investment for those sheep-based operations, new shearing sheds, new yards, which is excellent because the money's there. On the flip side, we're also seeing considerable, what you would say, prime lamb flocks that have had real issues with getting their sheep shorn, and when they do get them shorn, they're then actually getting a bill for the shearing of the sheep because the um, the uh, crossbred wool hasn't been worth enough to cover costs. On the back of that, we've had, and on, in the last three weeks, five different operations that are looking at moving across to shedding sheep so that they can remove the need to replace the shearing shed and get them shorn. This is this is the first time I've seen this happen. We've seen the shearing, the uh, the wool price in the past be an issue with crossbred wool, and that's been in ebbs and flows. But the shearing of the sheep has become an extreme issue in a lot of areas, and I don't know how the parcel shearings are going this year. You know, because they all start basically now uh, the northwest parcel right up through Lee Creek and out through Western uh, New South Wales. And I've heard some exceptional prices being offered to get shearing teams to leave one job and come across to shear at another another property. Well, isn't it the fact they mostly come from New Zealand and because of COVID they haven't been allowed to get here? It must have been a nightmare for wool growers over the last 12 months. Yeah, and that's, you couldn't have asked for probably a worse seasonal run 
than what we've had since November. We've had humidity, we've had rain, and that just breeds flies. And the last of thing course, you want yes. is uncrutched sheep or full wool sheep. Yes. Um, but you can't get shorn. Wow. Now, uh, the trade, the exports generally are a little bit soft here and there, but not too bad at present, both for sheep meat and for uh, for beef. Uh, yeah, Kerry, look, the, the actual January figures um, came out for beef. It was, uh, it was the softest total number uh, since about 2011. So it was, uh, and, and what was driving that? Um, Japan was well down for January. Um, it was, I think it was the lowest January export figure for beef uh, to Japan since 2002. Um, so that was a bit, you know, a little bit concerning there that our biggest market was um, was faltering a bit, and it flowed through to the total numbers. But um, on the bright side, um, South Korea started the year, you know, it's fairly strong actually, 10% higher this January than, than last January, and they're only 1% below their five-year average for January in terms of volume. Um, so that's looking good that South Korea are, are, are still kicking on as well as well as ever. Um, you know, and you had China below average, but given all the issues with trade there, um, I think they're about 20% below average in China for January. Um, but 20% down given we've got, what, 10 or so abattoirs um, banned uh, and high pricing, low supply, I think that's probably the result for China. Um, USA is still starting weak. Um, so it's a bit hit and miss for beef. Um, lamb, lamb was pretty good. Um, U.S. starting very strong again. China was below average for lamb, but um, you know, overall, I think the total the total lamb flows, um, you know, were reasonably good. The, you know, if you look at the, you know, U.S. and China are the two biggest, um, but for, for for total lamb flows, we were kind of below average, but still within the normal range. So, you know, not a bad start for, for sheep meat either. Chris, would you be aware of any issues with the lack of refrigerated containers? Oh, the container discussion has been ongoing. That more than six months old now. Just speaking down through the uh, the calf sales in the Western Districts, a couple of the uh, processors said it's an issue, but they're working their way through it. it. At the end of the day, it's just part of the supply and demand. If we can't get them back into Australia, you can't send them back out again. Look, I just want to touch briefly on the free trade agreement with the United Kingdom. It is in Canberra as we speak. I'm told it started as an agreement over 16 pages and there's now a document of uh, fifteen or 16,000 pages. Is this being looked at out in the marketplace with some uh, hope about the future? Because if you study it closely, it seems a pretty good deal for red meat especially. Yeah, look, I think generally the perception is with this stuff that it takes a good you know, three to five years before you get anything of real um, you know, kind of Worth that comes through where you start to see volumes happening. The documents, the document, but I'd be surprised if we saw anything starting to move physically this year. Um, you know, it, it does take time to nut out. But yeah, the, the deal sounds very good, and, it, and you know, particularly, like you said, the red meat, and, and even more particularly for, for the sheep meat and the land producers to be able to, you know, get their get their foot back into the UK market and compete, you know, directly with the New Zealand product that's, that's pretty uh, prevalent over there. Yes, and there's a chat even of a, a of a FTA with the EU, which would be even more interesting if that ever comes off. I would have thought with our submarine issues with France, we might it might take a bit longer to. to <laughs> that's um... exactly that's exactly why more likely to get a trade deal with India, which is very unlikely. I did note in the um, in the MLA land that they had a little bit of a about the submarine with the French arriving. I thought that was, that was funny. <laughs> that was some, very good. Yeah. <laughs> I loved the last frame of that ad. I thought it was an outstandingly good ad, but the last frame was a cracker. <laughs> With McGowan saying perfect. That was just 
a great touch. Uh, look, live trade, I just want to mention this quickly. Matty, last week I mentioned to you at one time there were signs of trouble for live exporters, and you said, no, exports are running close to the five-year average. Well, I'll say it again, live exports are in trouble. What do you say at this time in 2022? Uh, look, uh, again, the, the volumes, um, uh, I haven't looked for the start of January yet. I don't know if the numbers are, have been released, but um, certainly to the end of the year, they, they weren't that bad, all things considered, again, given our, our high price environment. I, I, I would make the point, though, Kerry, that as, towards the end of uh, last year, the last few months, we did see a significant reduction in the appetite into Vietnam, and part of that was um, that Brazilian product that was kind of going to Vietnam, and that, you know, that the year finished kind of poorly for trade to Vietnam. So there is a bit of a concern around, you know, how much market share they're losing to the likes of Brazil, and how how long Brazil can continue to put um, product into that market because you know Viet- Vietnam is the is the second biggest market for our live export cattle. Yes. Um, so that's something I'm keeping a close eye on. You know, at the start of this year, live sheep is, um, you know, I think live sheep's. Um, yeah, just being slow decline, unfortunately. Yes. I was talking to Ross Ainsworth and he told me that the Vietnamese don't like the, the toughness of the Brazilian bull meat that they're getting, which is, uh, which is a good thing, I suspect, and maybe they'll have another look at Australian cattle when they get a bit cheaper. Yeah, that's right. There's no doubt that, you know, whether it's Indonesia or Vietnam, they prefer the Australian products. And that's true of a lot of places, even for the box stuff that Australian products preferred and, and people like that. But when it, you know, sometimes price just, um, gets a bit too much for, for some of these markets to bear. Yeah, Chris, have you noticed a, a lot of those cattle that are not going on a sea voyage north, are they heading south down to Adelaide and down to uh, southern Victoria by any chance? Some of them, some of them they've got to go oh, somewhere, of course. No, they're, they're all coming back inside, and it's surprising. Those that had a real resistance to buying northern cattle yeah. in the past have actually come out of the Winston pretty good trades, you know, speaking to uh, a few up around Tamworth and that. That the trade result was well above what they expected. The secondary type cattle, you know, not much breeding in them, didn't get out of them so well. But any of those better bred Brahmins or uh, flatbacks or drought master, etc., they've come out of them exceptionally well and been well accepted into the processing trade. At present, we've got feed. You can come down through Alice Springs. You can go out through into the Channel Country. There's a lot of water in the Channel Country at present, and I think there's a lot of excess feed. So until that feed backs off. The demand for cattle out of the north will continue. There's a lot of cattle I know coming from properties in the Territory and even further west over to uh, to Roma and Townsville in Queensland, which is a pretty good taxi drive. But they seem to be able to make a lot of money when they do it the right way. It's uh, just extraordinary. It's, um, it's quite a trade, I believe. Well, they're taking the supply to the demand. Yeah. And you've only got to look at the way that the Alice Springs client bases have changed. A lot of clients in Alice Springs now have got property at Blackhall or Roma. Yes. Um, they use the uh, the territory blocks as breeding blocks and then they move them across to sort of value add and then onto the market. So I think that's just the way that the industry's changed. And the distance, a truck ride's a truck ride. You factor that into your buy price. If the vendor's paying it, you know, you pay more because they're already there. And if you're buying them, well, you factor that into the price you pay on property. Yeah, necessity is the mother of invention. They've got the cattle and the, 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 the demand is a thousand miles away. Well, let's put them on trucks and send them. That's yeah. it. The roads are the thing that we've just got to address a little bit. The yeah. highway's not much good. Exactly. I can't let this uh, Q&A pass without mention of the money being lost by processors. Matt, your latest assessment as Meatworks losing as much as $371 for every beast they process. How can this yeah, that's right, be too. sustained? Yeah, no, look, that's, 
that's right. But it's been a, a bit of a horror start. Not not dissimilar to the start we saw January in 2021, though, as well. So bear in mind, this is a, a theoretical model. I know we get comments a lot of the time that you know it's not every single processor, and it's only we're looking at these processors of a particular type. But um, the model certainly showing a tough start, and we knew as well with you know what was forecast for Florida this year and last year that it was going to be a tough couple of seasons. It's it's one of those things where we don't have to go too far back in time though that they were that are getting pretty healthy margins. You know, 2019 into 2020, and there were still some margins, good margins right around according to the model. So you know, it is a long-term game, and you've got to have deep pockets to survive it. And um, you know, the processors knew that this tough environment was coming. Um, so, you know, they should be well prepared to, to hopefully weather it out and we don't see too much in the way of consolidation this year um, with some of those smaller, uh, less efficient uh, processes. Let's uh, finish off with the topic that keeps on giving, the carbon emissions uh, transition, livestock, sheep and cattle. Is there is there any evidence that livestock from properties which have been certified carbon emission neutral, is there any evidence they have or will have a premium at the sale yard or in the supermarket even? Uh, it's probably a little bit, it, it's just a little bit early yet, Terry. The, what we saw at Wangaratta, which was carbon footprint assessed, so it wasn't neutral. It was just saying that we've now got a baseline to understand how many kilograms of carbon per kilogram of beef. Speaking to one of the major um, supermarkets um, only last week, or the start of this week, sorry, it is definitely on the radar. And I think at some point in time, it'll be like the re-emergence of grass-fed. You know, we went down the path grain-fed and then grass-fed got the legs on it. I think you're going to have an emotional an emotional buying pattern once we've got some form of accredited system flowing through the supply chain to the domestic market. Internationally, I don't know. But definitely, there's a lot of people that do like the ring of the fact that if you're buying carbon neutral or carbon assessed, that someone's doing something to improve the environment. Do they live in the latte uh, sipping hipster suburbs <laughs> of Alara and uh, Yarra Yarra, etc.? No, no, I, actually, I don't think it is. I, I think you're finding a lot of the buyers in the supermarkets now. You know, middle age, I'd say middle age, not not necessarily latte set. They're looking at the tins to see if it's Australian made, and they're prepared to pay a bit more money. And I think we are a lot more cognizant of those that are trying to do the right thing by the environment. What we saw at Wangaratta, I just thought it was a great step. It was actually the industry taking the message out before before reacting to someone having a negative view. And I just thought it was it was good. It created a lot of interest. Um, it hasn't oversold itself, but it's a really good starting point. I'm not negative, mate. I'm, think, just, I'm, just too, cyn- I'm just cynical about what's going on at the present. There's a bit of an element um, with, 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 in some sets, and it's a bit of a niche market too, but some that are happy to eat slightly less in the way of volume, but look for either higher, higher, higher quality, whether it's just through you know, the type of cut, whether it's, you know, or, or look for other add-ons, whether it's organic or whether it's kind of carbon neutral. They're happy to pay that premium and, and eat a little bit less, but then have the pleasure of... Um, saving the planet at the same time. It's a feel-good factor, I'm sure. Look, we'll have a longer discussion about the carbon emissions mission, zero by 2050 for Australian agriculture. Sounds good, doesn't it? Chris from Stocko and Matt from uh, Thomas Elder Markets, thank you again for being on The Grill with Beef Central. Thanks, Gary. Good to talk. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Beef Central and our podcast partner, Elenco Animal Health.